Hey guys, don't forget to check out the Street Cop Training Conference 2023, April 23rd through the 28th, Nashville, Tennessee, the Gaylord at Opry. What a center, what a place. We have amazing speakers, amazing training, five of the most impactful days of your career. Check it out at streetcop.com. You do not want to miss out. There is a room code available for a discounted room. Sign up now at streetcop.com. What would you want to talk about? I mean, I can talk about, so I can talk about you, you said that you didn't want to talk about the spillover. You had something about spillover. Did you have about conditioning and what's how that spi- happened? Spillover. Spillover. So how the conditioning on the job comes home and impacts the family. We'll do spillover. That sounds good. Cause basically that's, that's what initiated all of my uh, wanting to figure out what was going on because I kept seeing all these changes happening in my relationships and in other relationships with officers was because I was like, I don't understand something's different because, you know, it's that react, that big reaction. It's like at, at work, they were able to hold it all together. Right. So working with a citizen or the general public at work, they're, they know how to show up. They're kind, they can be reasonable. They come home and they're like reactive. And that was one of my biggest, like, what the heck is happening? How come my friends would say, you know, he's perfectly fine at work, but as soon as he comes home, he's blowing up at the kids. And that's only limited to law enforcement. Cause I feel like you're describing my father precisely. Um, I don't think it's just prescribed to law enforcement. I think law enforcement have a, have a, a, there's a psychological reason for it. Whereas I don't think other professions have a psychological reason for it. Do you think it's the individual or the actual profession? I think it's the profession. Interesting. Because it's the conditioning of the brain. It's the idea of that the hypervigilance has to work in correspondence with that prefrontal cortex. And then once it's tired, it flips it lid and goes. I wrote something when you said that. It said, why do we treat the ones we love the worst? That's it. Yes. And it's different because it's not, it's not intentional. It's, a, it's conditioned in. It's a biological, psychological process. And, and that's, where, that's where the resilience and resilience is so overused right now. But resilience is about like, how do I want to change this, right? How do I want to have, how do I want to course correct? And so part of the process that I have in the book too is like, hey, these are some things you can do to course correct that you can be in charge of who you want to show up as and not let the career dictate who you want to be and show up as in your relationship and then get divorced and, you know, have affairs and drink and your spouse cheats on you because it's 50, 50 goes both ways. So what other professions do people find themselves similar, uh, consistent psychological responses uh, as the ones we see in law enforcement, how about like attorneys, right? They're typically known stereotypically to drink a lot. So I think it's different because Yes, do attorneys to have some of that? Sure, but they don't, their lives aren't being threatened. So you've got to think about professions. So the closest I can come is military. However, military, you usually have short spurts as opposed to 
25 years or 20 years or 30 years. And I think it's different. Um, I don't know of any other occupation. Now, can there be some hypervigilance? Yes. But I mean, ER doctors, things like that, do they have to be aware? Heck yeah. They don't have to be aware of their lives being in danger and possibly dying. Firefighters, similar, different. Because most of the time, nobody's potentially, they don't usually go on scene and feel threatened or have the potential of being threatened. So I think officers are very different. How do we recognize if we are actually committing spillover, the act of spillover? And on top of that, on the second half of that question is, how do we course correct this issue? Oh, okay. So I think that's a good one. So Cindy, I don't know if you forgot from last week. I'm really fucking good at this. I said, I, I had said like your questions are just so like tuned in and very direct. And I'm like, you, you are fucking good at it. Let's oh, just whoa. I got to, I got you to curse. I was trying to do that. <laughs> I, there's the laugh. I, this is two in one right there. Cursing and laughing. I feel good. I'll tell you, Jesus is pissed right now. <laughs> um, so, okay. So I think the first thing is assess. So the big thing is an assessment, right? So you as an officer are continually assessing, you're assessing, you're doing your OODA loop, right? So I'm looking at things and I'm orienting and I'm trying to figure out what I'm observing and orienting, right? So you're used to doing some assessment and you're OODAing as a part of that. It doesn't, that's a process that comes home, but it's not a process that comes home to evaluate behavior. It evaluates environment. So if we could turn that around and look at the assessment, you have to understand where you want to be. How do you want to show up? I actually asked uh, somebody this question yesterday, I guess. I said, what kind of husband or what kind of spouse do you want to be? And this goes for both sides because it spills over and impacts spouses and family as well. So we wind up showing up in relationships in ways that we don't want to be. Um, we wind up being impacted. So how do you want to show up as a spouse? How do you want to show up as if you're a father or a pet owner, or whatever your roles are? And are you being congruent with who you want to be? You know, when you think about the interactions, do you feel like your partner is partnered up or do you feel like you're having control over the all the time. Do you feel bossed around? Do you feel nitpicked at? Like all of these uh, cues tell us that maybe we're not showing up the way we need to or way we want to show up. And I think it's really important to take time to evaluate who's the person you want to be and want to show up as in these roles outside of the department or outside of your role as, a, as, law, as law enforcement. So you have to have some kind of a, I call it my compass. So you have to have some kind of a compass as far as where you're going and then continually course direct and assessment is a big part of that. How can I assess what's going on? I can assess it based upon the number of arguments I'm having with somebody. I can assess it based upon the number of times that I see I blow up. Many times uh, people blow up in relationships and they're like, shit, why did that happen? Why did I blow up like that? Because five minutes later, you realize, God dang it. I didn't, what the fuck was I doing? Right. Two and curses, two F words oh. today. 
<laughs> even, even though you've calmed down, right? So when you calm down, you're like, oh my gosh. And then that's when kind of a shame spiral can start because then what's really hard is to go back and like, be like, I'm sorry. Um, that's, it's really difficult to do. And so we wind up not showing up as people that we want to be in relationships, but we have to assess that we have to know where we're going. So that's the big, that's the first step in knowing where you're going, assessing it, having a conversation either with yourself or people around you to give you feedback. You know, there's that, um, when I was in nonprofit organizational stuff, we had the 360 review. And I know people still use that 360 review, which is like others give you a review of what's going on too. So for asking for feedback, because sometimes our blind spots prevent us from seeing how we're showing up in a relationship. And so knowing where those blind spots are, working on those. And then I think the, the other side of that is then being intentional. So when you're coming home, one of the, one of the activities I really recommend is to have a process when you're on your way home, how do you want to think about how you want to show up with those people? I think I said this last time, even like, how do you want to show up with those people that are there when you walk in the door and it's vice versa? I mean, spouses have that responsibility too. It's 50, 50, everybody has to show up 100%. It's not a matter of this is all about the officer. This is also about spouses. This is about spouses being a part of that team and spouses being comfortable with saying, hey, I this doesn't work for me and we need to figure out how we do this differently. Do you need to have a different routine? Do you need to compress differently? What's going on? Let's have a conversation. It, it has to be um, that we show up and we don't walk on eggshells with each other. If you are recognizing a pattern of behavior that is not congruent or in line with what you believe to be healthy behavior, Mm -hmm. is this a good time to try to find therapy to address some of this? Yes. Oh, therapy never hurt, right? I mean, therapy never hurts. I would also say that sometimes looking at where we are and assessing that and knowing where we want to be can just be helpful because just like any other goal, you are going to say like, I want to be out here. And what are the small steps that I can take to get there? So just because things don't match up, doesn't mean that I need to get into therapy. Now, if you're stuck, then therapy is helpful because therapy can help to get you unstuck. If you're like, I don't understand what's going on. I keep trying to do this thing and I'm hitting a wall. Therapy is a great thing. If you feel like if you're talking to your spouse and y'all keep hitting walls and you keep having what, what Gottman would call gridlocked issues, where you're just buttoned up against each other all the time, then therapy would be helpful because therapy is about getting you unstuck. So if you feel stuck, then absolutely. When you talk about coming home and I'm going to try to preface this a little bit through my own experiences and, you know, I'm, I'm retired now, so I'm not a cop anymore, but unfortunately I'm probably going to be a cop for the rest of my life. Uh, that's how my brain has developed. Do you think that, well, I'm going to start with this first question. What is the word safe spaces or the phrase safe spaces mean to you when we talk about spillover and what we're talking about here? So safe space can mean different things for different people. Um, For me personally, 
I would say safe space is a place where I can be open and honest. It means that I can express emotion. It means that there's going to be kindness as a part of that. Um, it doesn't, it does mean that if there's anger or upset, that it's okay to speak that, to verbalize that, to have that emotion. I think many times we think of that anger or that upset as something we need to try to suppress in another person. And as long as, as long as it's not being directed at me or directed at you, then it's perfectly okay. So that safe space is where I can feel like I can kind of um, unfold or fall apart um, and feel supported, feel empathy, feel compassion, um, and that I'm not going to be criticized or shamed for what's going on. Um, when I'm thinking of safe space in my therapy room, it's a little different. Safe space in my therapy room is confidentiality. Safe space is unconditional positive regard. Safe space is that I'm going to meet you where you are and not judge you. It's it's the absence of judgment for sure. I'm trying to figure out which question I go with next because I want to make sure I fall on some kind of timeline that makes sense. And now I'm going to start using some examples of when I said earlier, I'll be a cop for life. I have four kids. When I am out with even three of them or even two of them, Mm-hmm. I am very hypervigilant mm-hmm. so to the point where people will be like, is everything okay? Mm-hmm. Everything's fine. I just am on constant high alert for threats. Yes. Let's unpack that a little bit. And that's, that doesn't change. I mean, I'm literally constantly aware of everything going on. I'm like, a, I don't want to say a psychopath, but no, you're not a psychopath at all. It's, it's conditioned behavior. So it's, it's something that your brain learned how to do to keep you safe. And so therefore your brain's wiring is, Hey, when we are in public, bad things can happen. Therefore I am going to do this thing called hypervigilance. And I am going to be uh, constantly aware, a heightened awareness of what's going on. And I'm going to be going through my process. Many times it's an OODA loop. I'm going to be going through my process to make sure things are safe. I actually have a really relevant story about that from a client that came in just this week. And it's a female officer who's been in the field for many, many years. Um, She has uh, worked domestic violence cases, sexual assault cases. She has seen really uh, horrible things throughout her career. And she is most upset the fact that this has impacted her and her children to the point where her hypervigilance has become so bad out in public that she is not wanted as a part of her family. She has kind of just stays home sometimes because she is so hypervigilant about her kids. She's worried about her daughter being attacked, even though she's probably in a safe space right there where they are together, that she um, has a strained relationship with her daughter. And it winds up spilling over. This is the spillover and impacting. Now, positive. The positive is that she's trained her kids that they need to be aware. They need to be aware of, she was telling me, oh, I tell my son, he needs to look at driver's licenses before he has sex with somebody because you never know, 
right? And wow. even if even if there's a legal driver's license, that that girl might be lying to you and she might come back around. Even if you have consensual sex, you might you might come back around and she may charge you. That is the level of hypervigilance that she is experiencing. Wow on a continual daily basis. And that is a part where, why she's in my office because it's negatively impacting her to a point where her anxiety is so incredibly high, which anxiety is the number one mental health issue with law enforcement. It is not suicide, um, law, it is anxiety because of this hypervigilance aspect. And so it's not something that you just turn off. You're not gonna suddenly, I'm going to be cliche and you're not going to suddenly be naive and be a sheep. You are always going to be that shepherd. You are always going to be looking out. You, you cannot unsee or unknow the things that you know. So a good way of doing that. I have a personal story where I used to think that my husband was controlling me because of it. And it felt I would push back and I'd be very irritated at him because I didn't feel like I could do anything. I felt like he was just hovering. I was like, I was very independent before I met him. I still am very independent if you can't figure that out. Um, and so because of that, I was like, you are, you are like hovering and I'm feeling controlled. And it wasn't until I figured out this hypervigilance aspect until I read Gil Martin 15 years into my relationship that I was like, oh, this is what's going on. So in a minor aspect, this is you, my husband looking at people in a restaurant and I'm going, whose ass are you checking out? Right. Why are you not interested in me? It's me saying, just stop talking. I just stopped talking. And he's like, why'd you stop talking? I'm like, cause you're not listening to me. You're not looking at me mm. because we're trained. Like you need to look at me, right? That's what we're conditioned to do, trained to do from a young age, but that's not what keeps you safe. And so as a spouse, I misinterpret that I get resentful because you don't care. That's my story that I have about it. And so I create stories about things. Our brain always creates stories about things that we don't understand. So if we know that this is a part of the conditioning that comes home, we can then start to talk about it and we can start to make plans. I still need to honor the fact that you're going to have a process. You also have to say, how do I want to be with my family? How can I honor this process? How can I go through this and still be present with my family or present with my spouse or my kids or whoever that you're your friends, whoever you're going to be about. So one of the things that now my husband and I do is I will communicate, Hey, I'm going to go over there. I'm going to check out those shoes or whatever I'm checking out. And I, I will make contact. If I go someplace else, I will let you know this actually happened. We were in Florence and it was very crazy people, people, people. And he was like, I'm going to stay here because I don't want to go into that store. And I'm like, okay, no problem. This is what I'm going to do. And I communicated it. And then I would also ask him and I would say, do you need a break? Do you need a break? Do we need to go get a cafe and go sit down? And, and do that. And he's like, yeah, I'd really appreciate it because he could sit and kind of just be at ease. And so finding that balance between honoring where he is and what his brain wants to do, because he's not going to be naive and let me go get kidnapped or pit pocket or whatever. And also understanding he needs a break from that. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, the other thing we do is we really limit the amount of time we go to major cities <laughs> or concerts or large events because those aren't things that are comfortable for him. Um, at the same time, we do some of those. I wrote on my notes here, it says, is it typical to pick places that allow safety to feel normal? It's like, so, you know, essentially, I live in a very, very nice town. Almost every event that the town holds or everybody who goes to these events is the same people. I'm friends with all of them. Um, we have no concerns of any kind of, I mean, everybody, it's, it's pretty wild. Everybody's just great right across the board. There might be one or two characters. And I use that very lightly. Anyway, um, man, my guard is down when I go to these events or have things You're at more my like house. a yellow. Yeah. Real guard, guard is down. And you know, uh, often Cindy, I, I'm like, I am the one thing, maybe, maybe two, out of two or three people here at this big event that separates um, stopping something significant from happening. I'm the only one here who's competent enough to actually fucking do that because mm -hmm. I've trained so much for it. Right. And it's clear as day. I mean, people will literally behave like sheep. They will not attack. And I have to constantly play a plan in my head of what the what ifs, what am I going to do? And of exactly. course, the one thing that weighs heavy on everybody's brains is an active shooter. Yes. You know, so yes. what's my plan for an active shooter with these Absolutely. kids here? Mm -hmm. I, I was with Yankee Stadium on Tuesday. Ooh. What's my plan for an active shooter mm -hmm. if I'm here and that happens? And, I, and I'm unarmed. I didn't want to bring mm -hmm. a gun with me into the stadium. You're allowed to, but I didn't. I think I tend to find myself going to places, maybe subconsciously choosing safer places to be for more comfort for me and my family. Does it make sense? Absolutely. I think that makes total sense because you're wanting to be with your family. You're wanting to relax. And I think that as, as a couple or as a family that is in law enforcement, that we have to, if, if we are going to have a positive relationship with each other, we have to, we have to understand the needs of the other person. Now that's any relationship, any, any relationship, we have to understand the needs of each other and help with those needs. That's part of my job. When I signed up to be in this marriage that I said, I would, I will consider your needs and hopefully you will consider my needs. So I think that is um, probably a better opportunity for you to have connection, to have experiences with each other that, and they probably get to experience you differently than if you are in a giant crowd. Earlier, you talked about anxiety being a significant issue, the number one mental health issue in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Let's, let's just try to explore anxiety just for a second. Are you finding that there's consistency in a pattern? And what I mean by that is, is anxiety created through experience? Is it predispositioned? Is it a pre-existing condition when people come into law enforcement that they haven't addressed it and now they're just really uh, you know, pumping air into this thing and making it 28 times worse than it was before because they didn't? You tell me. I think it's a little bit of all of that. So I always think I reframe anxiety many times for my clients and I say anxiety is fear right? So anxiety is a fight or flight response. When we feel um, anxious, many times people describe it as like, I want to come out of my skin. I'm just constantly vibrating that there is always something happening there with internally that I want to run away from. And it's a fight or flight experience. So 
Absolutely. Can anxiety is one of the mental health conditions that is learned. So if you grew up with a parent who was anxious, you are going to be predispositioned to experience anxiety Mm. because what your parent is doing is teaching you fear. That's what your parent is doing. So my mom was a very anxious person, I think. Love you, mom, if you're listening to this. Um, But my brother and I will both say like, my mom is a worry wart and she will always, she's always what ifing and always worrying. And so because of that, my, it was kind of passed down, not genetically, but environmentally that she taught us to worry. So if you grow up in trauma, or have a trauma, as we learn these things, your brain learns, hey, the world's not a safe place. There is bad out there. Your brain's job is to keep you safe, not make you happy. And so your brain will constantly look and scan your environment for what could happen. So I have a kind of a little bit of a funny story that when I was a kid, I read some article about this girl having her Achilles tendon cut by some some creep underneath the car. I don't know why I was reading that article, but I did. And so even to this day, before I approach my car, I kind of look under it to make sure nobody is underneath it because I don't want my Achilles tendon cut. Wow. Um, And there are even aspects where I'm like, I check my back seat because I have this fear that somebody's going to come and like sexually assault me from the back seat of my car. So when I have these, I have that as a hope. (laughs) (laughs) I check the back seat for a different reason, Cindy. You're like, hey, baby, somebody's back. But we, we come in like our experiences make up our, our fight or flight response and our fears. And so let's add on, I'm going to go two directions. Let's add on in law enforcement, everything that you are taught, you see, um, all of that, your brain learns, Hey, there's all this danger in the world. Spouses are the same way though, differently because they're like, Oh my gosh, all these bad things could happen to my spouse when I let, when they go on the job. Right. So they could possibly come home uh, or not come home. Um, That's why we when we are looking at the news, we're we're inundated with all of this fear, with all of this bad stuff. And it's really impacting our brains. But that's why. So two aspects here, like, yes, it can be from growing up. It can be trauma growing up. It can be it, it develops throughout your whole entire life. What your brain kind of learns along the way is that there's a powerlessness there. And so when our brain says, see, bad things happen and you can't do anything about it, good things happen to bad people, right? That we're kind of taught a lot of times growing up, like, well, you do all the right things and and everything will be fine. And that's not what happens. And we learn that all along the way. And you especially learn it as law enforcement. And we learn that as law enforcement families and his spouses. Um, And so what starts to happen is our brain starts to try to figure out how can we have control in an environment where we have none. Mm. And that kind of spills over too. One of my questions was, how does the brain develop its responses, biological or sociological? I'm assuming you pretty much answered that question before. It's a combination of both. These people had a predisposition Mm -hmm. biologically to have had a different type of brain and maybe neural pathways than other people. I, through even a difficult 
childhood and, and whatever, you know, I, I was certainly not spared from life's disparities. Um, I think I'm a really good example of compared to maybe another sibling of mine, one way or the other and how it went. So I was able to thrive and grow and it actually developed me to be this resilient person. Mm -hmm. And on the other side of the coin, it's just the opposite. Yeah. So, um, were you younger or older? Now I'm going to ask. I am the, okay. So I have a, this is kind of an interesting response. I have a older disabled brother, mm-hmm. uh, in the sense of the diagnosis, because it's wasn't discussed a lot, even, even though I'm his guardian now, like I don't have an exact diagnosis. I have many things that are wrong. Uh, if you saw my older brother, you would know that he was clearly not well. It's not hard to tell. It's an immediate thing. Um, I was the second one. So there's three of us. And um, I wore the hat of an older brother, Yes, even though I wasn't the older brother. Yes. Yes. So that that was a very interesting thing to go through because as a kid, um, kids are kids are tough, man. And I'm not saying that I was a I was a popular kid. Uh, I almost disassociated myself with my brother because it was embarrassing to me. Mm. And there were a lot of times that he was dealing with stuff that was unfair to him because kids are fucked up. And there was nothing I could do about that because these kids were much older than I was. And I was not some towering physical specimen. And I wasn't a weak kid, but I wasn't some amazing, I mean, let's face facts, Brazilian jiu-jitsu wasn't a thing in the eighties. So, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. So to, to unpack that a little bit, try to give you a little dialogue to help you understand my psyche a little bit. Uh, that is however you want to describe it. Yes. I was the second child, but I was very much the oldest child. You were the oldest. Yeah. yeah. I think sometimes what I see is older children are, and, and you have it, I don't want to unpack all of this, but you know, the idea I, that you have a, you have a brother with a disability. So my guess is that there was also some empathy that was developed for him. And so that's a resilience is being able to have empathy. Um, many times as older children, older children, many times feel pressure because they're the first. And so they um, can be overachievers, which can work for or against them sometimes. And then sometimes the resiliency also comes in the sense of like seeing a sibling that made really bad choices and seeing the consequences of that. And then we're like, I do not want to go that direction. So I'm going to go the other direction. So, you know, we, we can develop these patterns. We, our brain learns from these patterns of like, huh, that doesn't look pleasant. Let me go the other direction. I don't want to be in trouble. Let me Mm -hmm. do this instead. And so even, you know, you mentioned neuropathways, like your brain was learning along the way, like avoid trouble, avoid danger, avoid pain. And your brain did that in a certain way, which made you an incredibly resilient person. And that's just one of the 22 pieces of the puzzle. I'm not going to start awesome. making this my therapy session. No, 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 was, no. It's all good. Saying, yeah. As a child, as a childhood, that was just one of the, the variables of why it was a very, very difficult childhood. Mm. Um, one of the many variables, I'm not going to make this about me because that's what happens to these in these podcasts, uh, you know, we have another girl, Hannah Heyman, who's also associated with us, who does therapy podcasts with us too. Yes. And it starts to come out of me of like, let's, let's talk about Den and make Den better. Well, and you know what, he's probably a, 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 hazard of our profession as counselors as well, because we're very used to like listening to other people <laughs> as opposed to talking sometimes. So there you go. 
I want to go back to something about children and our 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 relationships with our children. And mm-hmm. you know, you spoke of this client that has this anxiety, which is so overprotective. And mm-hmm. I had mentioned that when we go out to places, and I'll tell you, New York City, um, Yankee Stadium. I mean, I am literally ready and on guard, and I have not put my guard down. However, I will also say this in the same breath. I read an excerpt once, and the excerpt was as I stand. It was a small poetic thing. It's as I, you know, as I stand. I think it was actually in a book, and it had to do with a father watching his kids in a tree climbing a tree. How one half of them wanted mm-hmm. to go up and say. Uh, you guys got to get down. You're going to get hurt. And the other half knew that he couldn't say that. So I don't use the phrase, be careful with my children. I use the phrase of go for it. And I often tell people at my house, because we have obviously we have a lot of kids. So a lot of people are coming over with their kids and we have the fun house and um, people will say, you see what they're doing? I got, and my response, everybody is we have medical insurance. They're going to be okay. I love that. Yeah. But uh, we have medical. Don't worry about it. We have medical. Um, my kids and through the, through the great mothering of their mother at eight, nine months of age, we're going up and down stairs. People would come over and they're a year and a half and they're going down the basement, very, you know, 12, 14 steps down to my basement. And they're like, Oh, oh. I'm like, but he's fine. She's fine. Let her go. But she's been doing this since she's eight, nine months. And that's something I really trying to develop in my children is the courage and not and by the way, when something looks dangerous to them, I am playing the light game of how do I get them to get into this, to feel comfortable with it? Yes. And here's one example. We have a slide at the end of our pool. My five-year-old, uh, sorry, six-year-old now, he is um, a little more cautious than his other siblings, uh, a little more convincing. I know not to push it too hard. I'm not going to drag him up the thing. Throw it. We have this slide. It's 20 feet high. It's inflatable. It's hysterical. And if you just go down at once, You'll understand what makes it so fun. But looking at it, it can seem and appear intimidating. Uh, so I made it a game to try to help him get past his anxiety of the fear of something's going to happen to me on the slide. Mm-hmm. And um, I got to tell you, in about an hour, he has confidently and is so proud that he's going down the slide. And mm-hmm. I just want him to see life like that. Like, yeah, we're all afraid of shit, but don't let fear dictate your experience in your life. Yeah, totally. And I, that's such a, um, I don't want to say great. It's a productive way to help raise your kids to say like fear exists and this is how you address it. It's empowering, right? It's an assertive way of doing it. And so they're empowered to go try things that are scary and their brain learns that fear is okay. And you can move through it. I always try to use the feeling and instead of like the, but right. Yes, budding. And so, and fear is okay. And I can overcome it and I can have control and I can do these things. And I think when we're looking at the fear and the law enforcement side of that, many times it's not just the fear of falling. It's the fear, fear of death. It's the fear of losing them. It's the lack of control. And so what I hear and what you're doing is you're saying, it's okay that I don't have control here because I can follow up in the back end. Um, I think many times with law enforcement, they're think it's the what ifing that winds up impacting the kids and making them feel restricted, making them feel different. And even kids being scared 
of doing things because we like, like I was saying, you kind of pass that along. So instead of passing that along, you're, you're passing along the idea of courage. I try to avoid, be careful, like the plague. <clears throat> I really do. I try to utter those words. And I have a saying that you can tell me if you like it, but I, this is me. I've coined this phrase. I get very philosophical and, and stoic and I live by it. And I, I really preach it here. It's although I have fear, I am not afraid. Mm, mm-hmm. You like that? Yes. I don't, I have a sign back here. Little dash Dennis Benino, founder, <laughs> CEO, street cop training. So I have a sign in the back on my back wall and, um, I had to learn to move through fear as well. And I have fear is my love language. So what I've learned, and it's a hashtag that I have for my kind of my coaching practice, which is the idea of fear means something's meaningful. And that is telling me that I need to go for it mm-hmm. as opposed to fear is something to avoid, which is what I did for a long time. So what's yours again? Say it again, fear. Although I have fear, I am not afraid. I love that. I'm going to write that down. I'm going to trademark that shit. I think you should. Just so you know, well, we're on the, um, we're here. I'm literally writing nonstop notes. <laughs> so this is, this is, I, I have significant attention deficit disorder. We've talked about this last time. And however, the blessing of that is, is I'm very creative. Oh yeah. Because my mind is often fucking la la land. Yes. I'm just literally, I try to, oh, it's wild. So I try Mm -hmm. to explain to people like, I'm just trying to grab these things, net them, stick them down. And I'm just constantly out there in the universe, netting these stars. I'm literally in a, in my mind, in space and there's millions of stars. And I just go for all, I'll take this one. I'll take that one. I'll take this one. I'll take this one. I'll take, let's get them here. I'm going to go back to earth. And then we're going to look at our stars and we're going to make some shit with our stars. <laughs> and people that don't have that don't understand it. You know, it's like going on vacation. And we, we talked about this last time too. Yeah. You want to yeah. torture me, bring me to fucking Cabo and put me on the beach and what, what a book. <laughs> all right. I, I'll, I'll lose my mind. Want to mm-hmm. make me have a good time. Bring me to Cabo, stick me on a boat, and let's go through like a crazy storm where I'm fishing for marlin that are 600 pounds, and there's a significant chance of death or serious bodily injury. It's like the risk. Yes. I just need the adrenaline. I need the constant stimulation of the brain. People don't understand that. They're like, you know, you work so much. I'm like, I I love it. Uh, Yes. It keeps me happy. It keeps me normal. Mm -hmm. I can't Mm -hmm. stop. Mm -hmm. I can't can't stop because this is what my normal is, where- I have to understand your side of it because that's how I feel when I'm sedentary. So if you're feeling that way, the way that I feel when I'm sedentary and I feel like I'm not productive and I'm, and you know, I look at life like, Hey man, like this fucking thing of time, they're not making any more of it. And you only get so much of it. So what the fuck are you doing with it? And certainly for me watching Netflix series or binge watching 11 episodes of something is literally like makes me want to vomit. Yeah. And I that's okay if that's good for you. Eye. But for me, I'm just trying to explain myself. Like I have no judgment against somebody who really enjoys that. Yes. It's just not for me. And yes. people have a hard time understanding because to the far majority of the population, that's how they live. You know, and I make, I poke fun at it, but it's okay. It's just not for me. I, I've got a good question for you. I think that you're going to like it. What made you want to become a therapist? You get that question often? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I actually do. Um, honestly, it, I think almost all therapists will have the same answer. Can I, can I guess what the answer is? I've heard this answer before. Sure. Yes. Do it. You were ended up being the ear for most of your friends and were offering advice already. So you followed that path. No, 
That okay. is not mine. Mine is that um, I, I, all fair, almost all counselors are the walking wounded, right? Uh, we, yes, I've heard that too. We are all the walking wounded. We are, actually, everybody's the walking wounded. It's just that we're willing to admit we're the walking wounded. And in being a walking wounded person and struggling as, as a teen, mostly, um, that I was like, my initial thought was I want to help other teens so they don't have to go through this. And that's initially what I had thought was like, I don't want other people to have to struggle. Like I struggled. And that was really my motivation is that I, and it's still my motivation. It's my motivation for everything I do. It's my motivation for code four. Like I don't want people to have to struggle if they don't have to struggle. If there's something that it's resilience really, right? It makes, it provides purpose and meaning to what my struggle went through was. And so if I can have meaning and help people not to struggle in the way that I had to struggle, that is, that is awesome for me. And that is, that was the reason why I became a therapist, a counselor, and that is the reason why I continue to do it. And I love seeing people in my therapy room. Sometimes people get tired of it. I don't know that I'll ever stop at least having some clients in my therapy room because I love doing the one-on-one -on -one work. I actually wrote, and you already answered the question, do you still enjoy it? But what yeah. I want to say is I want to acknowledge that we talked about fear earlier. Yeah. And oftentimes when we're given these gifts in life, um, maybe to be an independent thinker or somebody who, who's a resolver of problems and somebody who can fix things and somebody who actually knows that they can make things better. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, some people never share that gift with the world, but it takes somebody of uh, significant courage to show up and share their gift. And certainly even coming on this podcast, open yourself up to be vulnerable to criticism. Mm -hmm. And there are people who are not going to like it, but I always try to remind people who are doing things bigger than themselves that often as human beings, I think we see the negative side of things. We're not seeing the positive side of things. I mean, look at the, look at the news, you right. know, it, it, you can, you can grovel on fox.com or cnn.com, or you could actually go to a park and watch children play. Yes. And you could tell me what world you're living in, what's reality versus not reality, what's perceived reality. So I just want to say that I think it's awesome. And I'm super proud that you know, you didn't ignore the gift and you continue to show up, you know, out of the kindness and generosity of your heart, because you believe in something so tremendously and they're here just spending your time, your valuable, your precious time to try to help others. And that's really fucking cool. Well, thanks. thanks. I kind that. of, you know, a big motivator to me is, and where I, when I start to think like, um, when I start to want to back out at times, um, what I do think about is if I don't throw my stone, what ripples won't be made. Mm -hmm. And so if I don't do, if I don't show up and say yes, sometimes to things like this, right. Or to writing a book or to doing a podcast of my own or to speak or all some of these things that are really uncomfortable, um, who doesn't get impacted. And mm -hmm. I, I tend to think that this is not about me. It's not about I mean, it is in a way because it's my face, but in the, in the, in essence, like I don't do this because I want to be famous. I do this because I want to impact and, and make ripples and waves into the world and make it where other people don't have to struggle. Or if they do that, they have a resource that they can tap into, which is what you do as well. The best songs ever written were never written. Yes. 
that crazy? Mm-hmm. People just go. There's a there's a saying out of a movie called The Bronx Tale. You ever see that movie? I have a long time ago, but yes. So the saying is, "There's nothing worse than wasted talent." Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. are you using your talents appropriately? And sometimes people try to, uh, ca- you know, close your talents down and, and and jar them and put them away and let those people rule rule how you're going to live and be the talent that the world deserves you to be. Right. So I try to emphasize that and, and lead as an example. I'm constantly analyzing things and trying to make sure that I'm doing what I can to show up. And uh, and it's tough at times. You know, yeah. I've, I've, I'm not somebody who's secretive. It's not tough in the sense that I don't like coming here. I love coming here. Like I love coming here. I love doing the work. It's tough when the critics show up and sometimes they show up with pitchforks and fire. And you're saying to yourself, I am literally what I'm doing, what I believe to be. People have told me God's work. It's a yeah. big issue, and I'm doing the best I can to try to address and circumvent some of the issues that we're facing and plaguing law enforcement. Mm-hmm. People who pretend to care will actually show up and literally take as much opportunity as they can to try to diminish my efforts and criticize me and make me look like some kind of villain. Yeah. And yeah. I have to constantly think in my head, where's the pain? Where's the fear on their end? Why are they acting like that? Mm-hmm. What, what is what is driving this? Why won't they even sit and talk to me? You know, because I'd love to sit and talk to them. You know, why can't we calm it down and come in here and have a amicable, compassionate conversation and try to see things both ways? And unfortunately, I I can't control the variables in the world. I am. Uh, what is it? Give me the serenity to understand the things I don't understand, or whatever. How does that go? Yes, it's the serenity prayer. Yeah. I, and ironically, I'm like, you know, it's tagged to AA or those kinds of things. I had that hanging up in my house growing up. So like, you know, do the things, control the things that I can control and surrender the things that I cannot. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's things like that, that you cannot, sometimes you can extend um, explanation or extend understanding to somebody else and they're not willing to extend it. And that's okay. It, it's sad. It's painful. Sometimes I often look at critics as like, oh, I must have arrived because I'm getting cut down. So I'm being seen because somebody's criticizing me. Um, and I was recently on a podcast for, I actually get more criticized on mental health podcasts than I do on um, law enforcement. Go figure, right? Um, well, everybody's I, got their own fucking opinion and thesis on mental health. Everybody's got different, they're like canine handlers in law enforcement. If you've ever heard of this, every fucking canine handler thinks they're a fucking dog expert. It's the most ridiculous shit. You can talk to any kind of, nobody's got the same theories. Everybody disagrees. They all think they're the- Yeah, it's so, it's much more vulnerable. And one of the things that I said is, you know, I think what what would help is to understand for people that are fearful is to understand different points of view and to understand where law enforcement is like the lens that they look through and what is going on with them psychologically and emotionally and what's the impact. And it was really different. And um, I remember at the end of the interview, they were like, so basically we just need to like try to understand each other. I'm like, I think that would go a long way. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they like that answer, but that's the answer I gave. So the answer is the answer. I mean, and you mm-hmm. can't listen, whether or not you like the truth, the truth is the truth. And there is no disputing the truth. There's one last thing I want to say, and uh, I say it to myself a lot because, listen, I, I would love to show up every day uh, clear, 
perfectly, no cloudiness. Uh, everything's just, just sparkle. I know exactly the route I'm taking today. Um, and I really try to, even if I'm having a very difficult day, maybe mentally, and it, it's a little more often than not lately, uh, but that's beginning to subside because chapters of my life are changing and switching around. But I came to this and I don't, I certainly didn't coin the phrase, but I, I, I like to tell myself this. And then we're going to do a photo probably next week with me holding up a sign that says, I'm doing the best I can. Yeah. So if you can, if you can show up and say at the end of your, your day that, you know what, I did the best I could. Maybe you weren't having a good day, but you did what you could that day. Sometimes 20%, sometimes 100%, sometimes 64%. As long as you show up and, and do the best you can, maybe, maybe something as simple as there's somebody who is a, in a coma and, you know, there may be some conscious or, mm-hmm. and the best they could that day was wiggle their fingers. Mm-hmm. So what you can keep doing is trying to do the best you can. I think that that is such an important mindset because many times what we do is we judge or we shame ourselves for not doing quote unquote better instead of acknowledging that we're human. And that we have good days and bad days, and we have different ways that we have different mindsets and we're in different mental spaces. And so um, if I circle that back around to even relationships, like some days you're going to show up differently because you are um, relaxed, you have slept, you feel honored, right? And then on the other side, on some days, maybe it's just a bad day. And so we show up differently. And if we can have grace for each other, for showing up, if we believe that people are just showing up the best they can and extend that grace to everybody, my gosh, I think we would be all getting along a whole lot better, but we would have a whole lot of, whole lot more empathy and understanding for people as well. I think if we lived close by, it'd be dangerous because I'd probably be hanging out with you a lot. We got a smoker and we got barbecue. Yeah, you're a little bit of a, you're not exactly half an hour away, you know, <laughs> but um, I just want to say that, man, Cindy, I enjoy these. I think you do such a fantastic job. You really are bringing a lot to people. And I know that you don't get paid or I don't get paid, but, oh, it's such a good, another great moment of my life to get to enjoy and listen to the things I learned so much from you today. I just want to thank you for that. Oh, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, I, really I, always enjoy, I enjoy our conversations. Um, you know, your, your stars that you catch and put on the paper are awesome. So thank you. I appreciate questions. it. Well, we'll see you again next time. You want to hear <laughs> okay. my radio voice, my radio. Hey, we'll see you again next time. Cindy Doyle coming away from Texas out there. No, no accent on her. Uh, that's my radio voice. I'll like, listen don't. to the podcast. Just you know, don't. like nobody likes to hear their voice. I like listen to the podcast just to like try to make it. So I'm doing my job correctly. And you know, what can I do to make it sound better for the, for the, you know, the, you, the listener. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, I hate me. (laughs) (laughs) I think everybody, when they hear their voice, like, do I really sound like that kind of hybrid Ray Romano Kermit, the frog type of (laughs) people tell me, Oh, you got a good voice. I, yeah, I don't know. I've heard it. It doesn't sound great to me. You know, I don't know. Anyway, it was, it was great having you here and and have a great weekend. We'll put it together again. If you're good with it. Yes, for sure. It sounds good. See you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye.